0: Hi, welcome again to another Scottish Documented Podcast. Uh, today we've got a retrospective look at uh, reasonably well-known filmmaker Nick Brimfield. This class was filmed way back in 2008. There is a few small clips online, but not much, so uh, I thought I'd put a little bit more of it up. Despite being filmed in 2008, most of the things said are still reasonably relevant. I've cut it down to a bit of a half an hour highlight type thing. Nick starts by talking about his early days of making films and his time at the National Film and TV School. Uh, The film he refers to, The Beginning, Who Cares? is Nick's first film that he made before film school and it's available on YouTube, And from what I could see, 18 minutes long. Worth checking out. So, yeah, we'll get stuck in.
1: What I was going to do, just as a contrast, is to show um, a clip from my first film which was uh, uh, a film I I made before I went to film school. And uh, it was uh, um, all shot on short ends. It was shot on film, on sort of 16mm film. But it was in that transition between uh, black and white and colour. So this film looks as though it was shot like 200 years ago because it's in black and white and I would go around and sort of beg people for their short ends and then wind them onto a spool and, and shot it on this camera that ran out after sort of 17 or 20 seconds so there's no interviews. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and it's an 18 minute film. You, I'm not going to show you that much of it but then uh, I wanted to tell you this just to give you great encouragement for anyone who's having problems with their films. It then took me a year and a half to cut this 18-minute film. Because um, I'd, amongst other things, shot probably five or six other films as well as the final film that it ended up being. So, anyway, I'll show you a bit of this.
2: When you get in the lift, man, you just get in the lift and nobody says nothing to you. You know, you just go up in the lift. Their attitude is, well, why is this guy talking to me? Why is he being nice to me? What's he talking to me for? I don't know him. All you would get out of them, this lifts terrible, isn't it? You know, the this lifts terrible, isn't it? You know, you say, see, uh, bloody people, you know, and then you get out of your floor and you go into your flat, man, that's it. Nothing else, you know. There's no, there's no, there's no help here or nothing. The only time you, somebody dies in the block, you get someone coming around knocking on your door, you know, and so and has died, well, you give half a crown or or whatever you might have, you know, be just as respect, like, you know. This is it because nobody comes, you see. When we had a knock on the door, you go, who's this, you know, and if it's me wife's mother, oh, man, she's made up, is she, man, you know what I mean?
1: So, um, yeah, and so I kind of learnt about um, editing and stuff Really working on, on this film. I don't know. Have you all made films? Or, so you're probably much more advanced than this very primitive <laughs> stage I'm showing you at the moment. So you've probably made all your mistakes. And, <laughs> no? Well, I. Um, so this was kind of my learning thing. And maybe I'm. I don't know whether this is useful to you or not. But I think sometimes it's just. It's useful to. Because I found you know, making this first film of mine was by far the most painful experience I ever had. Um, and uh, I would think I was completely suicidal by the end of it, you know. And uh, um, I think sometimes you learn more by the pain that you go through than anything else, you know. And uh, I've tried to quit the film several times, but i would spent so much time on it that I couldn't really leave it. Um, and... And it kind of made me then address the idea of, you know, what the film was really about. What, what is this film about? And it was, a, it was sort of a film about slum clearance in Liverpool. But I'd also made all these other films at the same time. There was, you know, a fantastic Greek Orthodox church. I'd shot lots of footage in there because I just loved their ceremonies and stuff. And then there were... There was sort of lots of... Incredible characters and i had done bits and pieces with them as well. So it was I found the discipline of actually working out what the film was and working out how I was going to structure the film was you know probably by far the most useful thing that that happened and and also just going through various kind of almost pain thresholds was uh, the way I actually got there and got to having a film with a sort of beginning a middle and end. How did I get funding? Well, you see, that was, that's a good point, because I didn't get any funding at all. And I think often on the first film, the most important thing is to just go and make it and not, and not think you're gonna get any funding at all, because probably you won't get any. And, um, and, and I think probably now it's actually easier, because it's much easier to get you know, a digital camera of some sort to make a film on Then you know, obviously it was getting this black and white. And also it's much cheaper, I guess, now with um, all the editing facilities that are so much easier. Um, And I did manage to get... What I I did with this was I sort of got it to a stage where um, there was something that kind of made sense. And then I showed it to the British Film Institute Production Board. And they gave me sort of couple of hundred quid, literally, to, you know, they, they lent me an editing room, and, and enough to get it through the lab. And then, once I had this film, it was very useful, then I was able to get into the National Film School, and I actually got offered a job, believe it or not, from Granada Television, for having done this film. So, I think often it's just getting that first film <clears throat> and going through whatever hell you have to go through to, to get it. Because it's probably the most difficult thing you'll ever do is doing the first one. Um, and then I think you're well set to, you know, if you've really followed it through, you're well set, I think, to then do other things. Because it will always, everything else will always be easier, I think. I, I don't think I knew what my influences were at all. I, I just kind of went out and shot this thing. <clears throat> and, um, I just did it in a very scattered fashion because I'd really done still photography before. So I had lots of images, you know, but I didn't really, I mean, obviously making a film is different from stills in that you've got to put a whole argument together. And I'd also, when I was doing it, I would sort of, you know, do, I had a separate tape recorder and I would do interviews with, for example, you know, that old lady, you know, she was just a great character and we used to go in and have tea with her, and I'd put a microphone on the table. And she would just sort of tell these stories. And so there were hours and hours of her talking and reminiscing and stuff. And then there were some other characters as well. <clears throat> and, but I hadn't really worked out that the way of structuring the film was to transcribe all the, the tape recordings and then kind of read through and try and write a script from the tape recordings which eventually happened um, because a friend of mine was a a very good writer and said kind of, when she couldn't stand seeing the state I was in any longer, said, have you transcribed any of the tapes or, you know? So she actually helped me and went through and sort of, uh, you know, we then wrote wrote a script out, or she wrote a script out, and, and I then sort of cut the film around the script. So that was, you know, but it was, uh, a very useful experience to sort of go, you know, go through that and do that. Do you
0: always do that
1: now? Not really. Um, well, I think you know, shooting a film on sync sound is obviously different in a way. I mean, I think there's a great discipline actually in shooting a film that isn't sync sound because I think you're forced to finding a visual way of telling a story, which I think is often much more interesting, because film's a visual medium. and um, It kind of takes you more to the roots of cinema, which is uh, a visual form. And then, because I think the temptation with a lot of films is that you use the dialogue to shape the film, you know, in a quite a boring way. You, you know, you do interviews, and then you cut, you know, you kind of illustrate the interviews, which is like the worst kind of, filmmaking I always think because it's so unimaginative and it's you know. Um, but with the with the documentaries that I then went on to, it was more like I would shoot a particular sequence or a particular interview and then I would I would think, you know, what is it that I kind of want to know next? It was more like building blocks. And I would then, you know, cut cut that way more. But I would always make transcripts. Just because, you know, otherwise there's so much material you can't you can't, you know, you, you've got to sort of master the material rather than the material mastering you in the editing room. You know, it's sort of, I always feel in the editing room there's a sort of like a war between you and the material. And it's like, you know, and you want to be on top basically and be as organized as possible. Otherwise, it kind of gets the better of you. Because I just shot mounds of film on that film, you know. And, uh,. And I remember, because someone had also lent me a cutting room, and they hadn't bothered saying that actually um, you need to log the film carefully so you know where all the shots are. I thought what you do is you cut the whole film up into the shots and then hang them all in a trim bin. I had this gigantic trim bin, so I could never really find anything. And... um, yeah, it, was a night- it was a complete nightmare. And after a few months, I couldn't get the film through the machine anymore because it had so many splices and stuff in it. So I don't think you necessarily need to use film. But I think in the editing room, hopefully, if, if you rigorously go through the material you've got, you, you, know, you work out what it is you were shooting. And so hopefully on the next film, you'll be much more precise about what you need and what you don't need. I think one of the great things about spending days and months in an editing room is you kind of really see there what works and what doesn't work and what, you know, and that's what's going to make the next film so much easier to do. So I, 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 I've never really understood in like some film schools, I know that they have like editors and they have directors and they have, and I've never really understood that because I think if you want to be a good director, you've really got to be in that editing room and you've got to go through everything, you know, and see, really see what works and what doesn't work and, you know. When I went to the National Film School, it was, uh, it was wonderfully disorganized. I mean, there, were, there weren't, there was just a lot of equipment and a lot of, uh, and, and there weren't really any teachers. Uh, and so it was kind of like, um, everyone went off and just made their first films and, and um, You know, I started off making a 10 minute film about the local MP, who's a guy called Ronald Bell, who's extreme kind of right wing MP. And a year later, I was still shooting that 10 minute film, but I'd shot mounds and mounds of footage and, you know, and then I sort of put it together. And No one really at the film school realized what anyone was doing, so. But, and again, so it was very much just sort of learning in quite a, it's much more controlled there now, by the way. It's sort of much more organised. I think we just had the luxury of doing that because uh, the film school was very disorganised, you know. And the other thing I thought was great at the film school was that there were lots of people who would come and show their films. That was the only thing that was kind of organised. You know, so all the sort of People like Penny Baker and Wiseman and Herzog and all those people came and showed their films and, and would spend, you know, they would... Colin Young, who ran the film school, was a great cook and also a great collector of wines. So people would want to come there and drink his wine and they, the wine would loosen them up and so you would kind of learn almost more around his table than anything. So that was all kind of fun, you know. And and also, I think, at the film school, you know, Colin Young's kind of love was very small anthropological films with a crew of two. And he was always encouraging people to find the partner to work with, which I think is a very good thing, you know, because although you can probably make a film now with one person, you know, if you're on the film for a long time, like 10, 12, 14 weeks, you kind of need someone else to amuse you or say it's alright, you know, we're doing the right thing and give you a bit of courage, do you know what I mean? So uh, it, we were very much encouraged to find that person we were going to work with that would kind of, you know, you stay together. So that was, that was great. That was a really good thing. <coughs> yeah. Be a question about the um, use of voiceover, like the original films didn't seem to have as much voiceover. Was this a change in your personal taste or did you feel it was necessary to tell the
2: story you wanted to tell?
1: Well, I just sort of changed. Um, I mean, I worked in a sort of more traditional, sort of um, almost an observational cinema rete style. And then um, I had an experience in making a really terrible film with Lily Tomlin um, about, do you know her? She's a comedian who... And I always thought she was terrible when I was making the film but I was working with Joan Churchill, and we made lots of films together. I wanted to start commenting on how terrible I thought she was, but Joan disagreed, and so we, we, made, this, we made this film, and it w- was terrible. The film was really bad, and then Lily Tomlin sued us afterwards, and, it, uh, you know, so I didn't even have the satisfaction of making the film I wanted to, and then being sued, which would have been better. So... Um, and then when I came to doing the next film which was called Driving Me Crazy there were immediately problems on that film too was a, lots of arguments about the financing and so on and I thought well, what I am going to do is I am going to make a different film I'm going to put my doubts and reservations into the film and, and just try an experiment to, to do something so it's kind of almost like you know in a cartoon where you have bubbles with people's thoughts coming out I thought maybe it would be fun to have those thoughts in the film, rather than pretending you're not there. You know, make it more like a comic. So that was good fun. Um, so that that was just a film that was sort of completely out of control. And I thought, well, maybe if you move back the sort of boundaries of the film and the parameters of the storytelling, uh, rather than trying to make the film that you set out to make. You know, you can encompass all this stuff. And um, and it's actually probably a much funnier film. So, uh, so that's what I did with Drive Me Crazy. I never thought it would actually see the light of day. Uh, because then there were lots of, we couldn't ever get a release from the producer, Andrew Brownsburg, at the end of the film. Um, he, he wouldn't sign his release form because he was so ashamed of his performance in the film. Um, and once there was a hilarious, Andrew was also, he, he liked fencing, he used to do a lot of fencing. And he would come to the cutting room with this saber. And <laughs> <laughs> we nearly put this in the film. The, the producer, the other producer who was working for Virgin had his release form. And it was literally chasing him down Wardour Street. <laughs> with the release film, and Andrew was swiping at him with a saber, trying to get a taxi to get away, you know. But in the end, uh, Andrew's, Andrew's wife insisted that he sign the release film, because she said, when I tell my friends what a ridiculous life we have together, and the ridiculous things you do every day on the phone, they will understand when they see this film. You sign the release form. So, so anyway, and, and so then I started working in a slightly different way not always in such absurd situations, it's driving me crazy, but sort of using more the experience of making the film and being a filmmaker and acknowledging uh, the presence of the filmmaker more um, in in a kind of number of other films, some of which you know, were more political and that sort of thing.
0: Was that because of the good feedback you got from that
1: style? <coughs> I think I just quite enjoyed doing it. Right. It was... I think it's very important when you make films that you amuse yourself, you know, because you spend a lot of time alone and they take a long time. So you might as well enjoy the process of doing it. And I felt that actually you could tell a more complicated story that way. Uh, And it was just, in a way, it was just a more open way of telling a story. And I think often people reveal a lot more of themselves if you don't say too much. I think, as an interviewer, if you interject or come up with something, I think you really have to have very good reason for doing it. Because I've looked at so many interviews that I've done, for example, where the interview was actually going just great, and then I said something which just took it off in in completely the wrong direction, which obviously you don't want to do. And, And sometimes, you know, when you're looking at an interview, particularly back in the cutting room, when you haven't got all the sort of normal pressures around you of filming. You can see so clearly where you interject too early or you maybe make the wrong comment and you, you know. I find sometimes if you just repeat the last three words that they have said, they'll then just continue on, you know. (laughs) You know, they'll say, like I mean, and you say, like you mean. They will just carry on. Because so all you want to do in an interview is sort of get into their heads anyway, as much as you can, and, and find the phrase that will open it up, so you just keep going. And that's often the better thing than coming up with, two, with a whole big question. Yeah, I think you always think about what you w- want in the edit. I mean, I think you, I mean, obviously you, you, the main thing is you get whatever you want for, and then you just gotta make sure that you've got enough stuff. You know, I think if you, if you go into someone's house, often, you know, for example, they might have amazing photographs, or they might have uh, incredible bits of the, of the story that you want, that, that you won't, and the thing I've learned is you never get a second chance You've got to kind of get it when you're in the house, then, because they always promise to send you any number of things, but they'll never arrive. So you, you know, sometimes I think you, you know, you, you, if there are photographs or other bits and pieces you want, you just have to shoot them all there and then, <coughs> or, or establish, you know, if you're establishing their house or where they are, <coughs> you have to, do, you have to cover yourself after you've got what you need, you know. Yeah, it's the experience of phoning sort of 6,000 miles and trying to get some guy's photographs and, you know, he never sends them to you. So, and you've seen them, so it's that's kind of frustratingly painful thought. So then you just always get everything when you're there. You know, particularly some of the films, like Biggie and Tupac and stuff, people would have amazing pictures of them themselves with Tupac, which, you know, when you're in their house, they'll just let you film it. Then when you contact them two months later and say, oh, I'd love to it, then you're having to pay like $4,000 for it, or, or you don't get it at all, or you know. I think you have to believe in your instincts. And, and, you know, especially too, if you work with a particular person who, you know, whether they're on camera or they're on sound or whatever. Um, I think probably between the two of you, you've got a pretty good sense of what is the right thing to do. I think that's the advantage too of working with a partner who you trust and you know, you know each other and you know what you're doing and that's, it's a good way to work.
0: We're getting close to the end now. Uh, Nick's just about to talk about his views on pitching to get funding and how you should or shouldn't go about it. And then he talks a little bit about the structure of his films and how he likes to think of them
1: shamelessly. I mean, I suppose you can be very honest and very arrogant, but you probably won't get the money. And you can go in and say, well, what do you want me to say? Because I can say it. But I am making a documentary. And part of that is I'm not not in control of what's going to happen. And this is a ridiculous exercise to expect me to tell you what's going to happen, which is the honest thing to do, which is why I always think all these pitch things are so ridiculous, because it's like uh, are we dealing with, you know, reality or not? Is this And I think the whole wonderful thing about documentary is probably your attitude to someone is going to change completely when you're making the film and, and you want to make a film that will encompass that. You know, so... I, but I guess you probably... The, the wiser answer is work out what you think they want and tell them that, you know. <laughs> and then go and make the film you want to make. Yeah. I think particularly if you're, <clears throat> you know, working with a good, with a good crew of people and, um, and people like you and, and you, they have fun with you, then they reveal lots of, a m- lot more of themselves and they, their humanity, I guess, comes through. Which is kind of the fun of it, you know. <clears throat> and I think, you know, my crews are normally fairly kind of shambolic. And we have lots of you know disagreements amongst each other, and you know, so it's mu- it's much more allowing everyone to be who they are. You know, like we would go into JP's house and always eat everything that was in his fridge, <laughs> uh, and you know, sort of um, generally sort of uh, you know, behave quite badly in his house, which he enjoyed because you know he he had that sort of humour. And so in that way, I think, I mean, I think the worst thing is to be a boring crew, because then, you know, you're kind of an unforgivable drain on people's energy and, and they're not getting anything back. But if you can make people laugh, uh, they'll you know, do anything for you, really. Well, I've only once not finished a film that I started, which was um, a film uh, that was shot in a tax office. And the idea was to to show that tax offices aren't boring um, and and it was it was really pretty boring and And I was also working with a crew a crew years ago, probably before most of you were born. Um, the TV companies all had these sort of crews that belonged to the TV companies and and they were generally kind of you know, the main thing was the lunch break and getting to the bar at the end of the day. And they were, like, totally not into really shooting. Um, And this particular cameraman wouldn't use a zoom lens. He just didn't believe in zoom lenses. So I would sort of, you know, I was, like, fresh out of film school. I'd sort of say, uh, I'd like to get a close-up now. Let's get a close-up. So he would walk up to the person like this, you know, (laughs) And not surprisingly, all conversation would cease and the person would just look sort of terrified. And I, you know, there was nothing I could do really. Um, And after a few days of this, I just realized I wasn't gonna win. So I stopped making the film. But otherwise I think, you know, generally you have to promise yourself you're gonna finish the film. Because I think on most films you want to finish before, you know, you kind of think this is so difficult, I'm never gonna get to the end. So I think you just have to carry on until you get to the end. And I've often started a film, and for example, had a budget which was gonna last for, say, three weeks or something. And, And I've been still shooting, you know, after three months, you know, 14, 15 weeks. So sometimes you just have to keep going, I think, until you get the film. Well, I, I suppose the idea really was to sort of be taking the audience off on a journey. So, um, so when you, for example, arrive at someone's place to actually see where they're living, to get a geographical sense of, you know, what their place looks like, and and sometimes I would film the very beginnings of the meeting with somebody because I think <clears throat> often in those first few seconds it's a bit like you know, two animals meeting each other for the first... You know, a lot of your impressions are those very first impressions. And it's almost trying to, like, put the audience in the, in the driver's seat so that they see everything for the first time. So I, I was very mindful of the fact that if you're making a film, there's not much point in having great things happen that aren't filmed, that happen off screen. So as much as possible, trying to, you know, film everything, I think, So I think there's that. And then, you know, I try as much as possible not to give, like, masses of information with a voiceover. I think it's much better if it's more like a diary so that it's more subjective and impressionistic rather than kind of giving you facts on... Because I think that's just a boring way of using voiceover. You know, it's kind of... It pulls the audience out of the film rather than taking them in. So I, I think if... If the voiceover is more subjective, it pulls the audience in more. And I think if you if you start using voiceover as it's normally used, which is to give information, I think it's very distancing. I think it, you know generally there's got to be a better way of doing it. Well, thank you very much, and it's been a great pleasure being here. I hope you've enjoyed it.
0: Thank you very much. Okay, thanks for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed or maybe learned something from that. Feel free to share it if so. Or maybe you'd like to check out some of our previous episodes. We've got Alan Beliner and Victor Kozakowski in conversation, and uh, Jeremy Weller, uh, Mark Cousins, things like that. So uh, they're all available for you online at www.scottdoc.com. And uh, obviously, the podcast is available on iTunes by searching Scott Doc or Scottish Documentary, or uh, yeah, we're on SoundCloud and everything like that as well. So, um, Yeah, feel free to uh, subscribe. Anyway, until next time, see ya.